0: Well, good morning. If you would go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges, we are going to be in chapter 3. And this morning, we are going to look at one of the more obscure stories in the whole Bible. This is a a passage that is weird, Um, it's a little humorous, and it's definitely uh, slightly graphic. Um, And especially if you are unfamiliar with it or you haven't read it much, the first time that you read it, it may be very unclear unto, what is this? What does this mean? Why in the world is this passage here? And, and what in the world does it have to do with us this morning? And so one of the questions that we really have to wrestle with when it comes to the Bible is, man, how do we deal with passages like this? There's a reason that so many of us can tend to avoid narrative or we can avoid some of these harder passages in Scripture because really we just don't quite know what to do with them. But we believe that all Scripture is God's Word and it's all from Him and it's all important and it was all written for us. This wasn't just written to give us a a history of things that happened as it were, that God chose each detail and every word with a purpose, not just for Israel to know their history, but for us as well to know what God requires of us. And so as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to to wrestle with that, and I'm going to try and, it'll be a little different this morning, I'm going to walk through so many of these details and try and show you how each of these details reveal what the meaning of this story uh, is. And so this morning, our judge that we're going to look at is our second judge in the book of Judges, and his name is Ehud. And so I'm entitling this sermon, Ehud, Left-Handed or underhanded, Uh, because what we see with Ehud, I'm going to kind of propose to you is I think that all of the details in the story from, from the humor to the weird to the obscure are all trying to show us something about Ehud's character. And so if you would, if you would turn with me, um, we're going to be, start in verse 12 I and mean, we're going to go kind of all the way to the end. So if you would, stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took to ve- to possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, eighteen years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel set tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat and Ehud reached with his left hand, took his sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt went in after the blade and the fat closed after the blade. And he did not pull the sword out of his belly and the dung came out. And then Ehud went out to the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked him. And when he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought to themselves, well, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited until they were embarrassed. But when he still didn't open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. And when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel went down with him to the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also... Saved Israel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I just ask that you would open up our hearts um, this morning. Lord, that you would do what only your Holy Spirit can do, which is help your word make sense, that you would illuminate um, what it is that you have to say. Lord, would you um, be with us this morning? Would you be with me? Would anything that's just coming from me and not from your word just go in one ear and, and out the other? But would we leave this place having had an encounter with you, an encounter with your word, and an encounter with your people, and would be changed? We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. You can be seated. So this morning, you may notice I don't have many points. really just have one main point, and then a smaller kind of application will hit at the end. But your main point this morning, if you're taking notes in your blank, or in your notes, is that to not take matters into your own hands... Be obedient and leave it in God's hands. So this is our point, is to don't take matters into your own hands. Be obedient and leave it in God's hands. And so at the beginning, what we see in this passage is what we're going to see over and over again, and we've already seen before, that the people again have already turned back to their sin. Right after Othniel, our first judge, dies, people of Israel again do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And it repeats it again at the end of 12, and they do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so God does what he has said that he would do. He turns them over to the people, to the king of Moab, and they have been oppressed for 18 years by this king and his people. And so they cry out, and God raises up a deliverer. In verse 15, he raises up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. And so that's who we're going to focus on this morning is on Ehud. And one of the questions kind of in this passage is just around Ehud's actions. And, well, what is this? Is this an example that we're to follow? Is this praising and talking about how kind of genius or crafty or how much of a great assassin Ehud is? Or are these the actions of a schemer or of someone who's not trusting in God and actually taking things into their own hands? And now, my opinion is I think this passage wants us to believe the the latter. I think this passage is trying to show us how Ehud is not actually filled with lots of faith and honoring God, but he is kind of trying to do things in his own way. And so, I want us to do what we do every week and just let's look at the passage. You're, You're allowed to disagree with me. Maybe you don't think that's exactly what it is, but let's make sure that whatever our opinion, it's coming from Scripture. Um, so, I want to kind of show you um, why, why I think this. And, you know, full disclosure too, I seem to be in the minority when it comes to this passage. Um, so, if you disagree with me, you're in good company. But there's some evidence in here that I just can't escape. And so, I want to show it to you. And so, last week, right, we talked about Othniel and he's the ideal judge. So, he's really one of the only judges that is presented to us um, without, without blemish. And he is the, the example. That all of them kind of follow, but they don't follow it exactly. They don't all have talking about how they all reign, or they don't all talk about God being with them, or there's certain parts of that story that aren't there. And so Ehud is kind of introduced, and it's a little different. Right away, it says, you know, he's Ehud, the son of Gera. He's a Benjamite, tells us his tribe, and he's a left-handed man. And there's some options on what even that means by him being left-handed. The phrase literally means kind of in, in Hebrew that he is bound in his right hand. So it could mean he's disabled. It could mean like his right hand doesn't work. It could mean he doesn't have a right hand. It also could just mean that he's left-handed. It's a little unclear. Later on, there's passages where it kind of uses that, and it's very clear that they're just left-handed. Uh, but there's, you know, there's some options. But it at least means his left hand is his dominant hand, however it got that way. And it's interesting because he's from the tribe of Benjamin. And if you know or if you remember, well, Benjamin was named, and his name means son of my right hand. So here you have a left-handed man from the tribe of right-handed men. So he stands out. There's something different. There's an implication that Ehud is not quite like everybody else. And being left-handed this time especially is looked down upon. Even now, being left-handed, we don't maybe look down upon it as much, but you're part of the minority. There's less of you. I'm sure there's some of you in here who are left-handed. You don't have to volunteer or out yourself, but here at this time, it was definitely looked down upon, and one of the big reasons there, well, we're just kind of hygiene. There's certain things that most people use their left hands for when they went to the bathroom, and so if you're left-handed, that's just people aren't going to trust you as much. So we see that he's different, and then we see this very elaborate plot that he goes through to take care of the king of Moab, Eglon, and right at the beginning, what he does is, so he makes for himself, in verse 16, a sword. With two edges, a cubit, it's about, you know, 18 inches and not super big. Not, we'd really probably just call it a knife, not a sword. And he makes it and he binds it. He hides it on his right thigh under his clothes. But if you look too, it's interesting what's there. It says he makes for himself a sword. It does, God didn't tell him to make this sword. He's not making it for his people. He's not making it for God. He's just making it kind of for himself. He seems to be taking the initiative. As you see, the people of Israel, they're sending a tribute. So 17, they're presenting the tribute to Egalon, the king of Moab. Now, the tribute is money that you send to the person who conquered you, right? It's, hey, please leave us alone. Don't kill more of us. You know, here, here's all your taxes. We, and we're admitting you're, you're in charge. You're over us. If you're not sending the tribute, you're sending a clear message that, no, you're not over us anymore. So it's also significant to notice that now God has raised up a deliverer. It's going to deliver them from this king, and yet what are they doing? Well, they're not, not sending the tribute, saying, hey, we have a deliverer. We're free. God's going to free us from you. Now they're sending the money anyway. And Ehud is taking the money with them. So Ehud, he goes, and he's carrying the tribute in verse 17 and then 18. So he sends the people away. So they give it to the king. Then they leave the king's presence. They're walking away. And he sends away the people. So then, okay, everybody leave me alone. I'm going to go back, 19. And he himself turns back. At the idols near Gilgal. The phrase is important, and this is one of the phrases that keyed me into. Some, you know, I think something is going on here, because idols are mentioned twice in the story. They're mentioned here as he turns back to head back towards the king in verse 19, and then they are mentioned again in verse 26 after he leaves. It mentions again that he passes by some idols. So there are two times that Ehud, the deliverer of Israel, their savior walks by false gods and false idols and does nothing with them. He completely ignores them. And I think every detail in Scripture is significant. It's not there just because that happened to be where he turned around. It's, I think the author is trying to, and God is trying to clue us in to something about Ehud's character. That he doesn't destroy these idols. He doesn't command the people to tear them down. He just passes by them. That's something a judge should do. That's something to deliver. That's something a prophet, a leader of God's people who is supposed to be following after God should take care of their idols. That's what we see Gideon do. That's not what we see Ehud do. He just ignores them. And there's even kind of a double meaning here when it mentions the first time at 16 that he himself turns back at the idols near Gilgal because that word for turn back, it doesn't just mean, hey, they turned around to return somewhere. It's also often used to talk about repentance. To talk about a turning around, a turning from their sin and going somewhere else. So here you have Ehud and he shows up at the idols and he turns around and you would think you're kind of setting up Well, near idols and turning around. Well, you're probably turning around to you know, destroy the idols, repent of your sins. But he doesn't. He's doing something different. And it's also significant to see where, where, where are these idols. These idols are at Gilgal. We've mentioned Gilgal already in this series because it's been mentioned before. We talked about it in the book of Joshua. These idols are at a holy place. These idols are are put up where God delivered his people, where they crossed over in the Jordan. And when they got to the other side, God said, hey, put up memorials, put up some stones, put up some things so as your children walk by, you can point to them and tell them about how I delivered you, about the miracles that I've done for you. But instead of memorials to God at this place, we have idols and other gods. This is a place where they celebrated Passover and where they circumcised themselves. So instead of memorials there, we just find these idols. And I think this is one of the biggest indictments of him as a judge. That here, especially at this place, he ignores them. Now, maybe even if you want to say at the beginning, well, he didn't want to do it yet. He wanted to wait until, you know, he took out the king and now we're ready. And so he didn't want to, you know, give away his plot. Well, if that was the case, why does he ignore him twice? At the beginning and at the end. And so I think these reveal that he's really not relying on faith and he's not being completely obedient to God. And so he turns back at the idols. He goes to have this meeting with the king. And here's the meeting in verse 19. You know, king, I have a secret message for you, O king. And the king commands silence and all the attendants go out. Again, too, there's kind of a funny double meaning in these phrases where he's saying, I have a message for you. That word for message is actually a little vague. Um, It'd be more like, For us, hey, I have something for you. And the king assumes, well, that that word means message, so it's probably a message. You're saying secret message, that must be it. But it also can mean thing. And so then when he says, well, here's the message I have from God for you. It's really, here's the thing I have for you, and it's my sword, and now I'm going to stab you with it. So he's kind of being a little vague and deceitful. Now, if you ask you about it, you could say, well, I, I didn't lie. I said exactly what I was going to do. I said what it was. I didn't tell him it was a message. I said it was a thing. And afterwards, it's kind of clear. And now the story gets weird as well in the 22. And the hilt goes into the blade after it. And the fat closes over the blade. And he wasn't able to pull the sword out of his belly because it mentions before. He's the only person mentioned in Scripture that I'm aware of, that feels the need to tell us that he was fat. And so he's so large that the sword goes all the way in and then Ehud can't get it out. And then in the Bible, right next, the sword doesn't come out and the dung came out. So instead of the sword coming out, that comes out of Ehud's, or not Ehud, Eglon's intestines and his stomach. Why in the world is that in Scripture? Well, I think there's a reason here. And look, I think actually what's happening is I think... The narrator and God is kind of poking fun at Ehud because it mentions, well, the dung comes out, and then right after that, Ehud comes out. I think it's intentionally trying to describe Ehud like feces, I think. And so, Ehud, he, he leaves, and he locks the door, and he locks the door as part of his brilliant plan. I'll lock the door behind me, and then they won't be able to catch me, and now I can escape. Which is funny, too, because the servants have a key, it mentions later in 25. His great, brilliant plan of locking the doors, it, it ends up working, but not because he's so smart. They still, they have keys. It's not the only thing keeping them back. But so the servants, they, they wait, and the reason they wait so long in 24 is, well, they assume surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chambers. Another way, might David paraphrase: well, he must be in the bathroom. That's why the door is locked. That's kind of what that, that room is referring to there. So he escapes again, hooray, in 26, escapes while they delayed and passes by the idols again. So again, even if you want to say, well, he's waiting, he's going to deal with the idols later, he still doesn't seem to. Now, the, the story is it's weird, it's kind of humorous, but I think, too, all this humor is intentional, I think it's partly meant to be a little ridiculous to just show how ridiculous all the stuff that Ehud is going through that really he's just taking all this stuff into his own hands that he himself is trying to save and deliver Israel in his own way and he doesn't need to because this isn't a story about how brilliant Ehud is as an assassin because he's kind of a dope they, they doesn't ever mention that they searched him and that's why they couldn't find the weapon we you might hear that or we assume that, but yet there's lots of other details in the story and that one's not given. He ignores idols and he, his big thing is he locks the door and they have a key. It just happens they get embarrassed and wait too long. And also one of the biggest things, is you don't see God present in the beginning of the story at all. You don't see God saying he was with Ehud. You don't see God saying he commanded him to do this. You, God seems a little absent. And here's why I think all of this is totally unnecessary. Because after all of this happens, look at 27. He sounds the trumpet and he says, okay, guys, like, let's, let's go. 28, follow after me. The Lord has given you into the, your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. Also, 28, he's saying, follow after me. It's one of the only judges I think who seems to say that. It's not, hey, let's follow after God. Let's be obedient. Let's do what he's asked. It's, hey, follow me particularly. And so he does this. And and continuing, and so they go, and they all go after him, and they seize the the fords in 28 of Jordan against the Moabites, and they don't allow anyone to pass over, and they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites. All strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. That's a pretty successful battle. It's also important, look, you see these these people are all strong, they're all able-bodied. It's making sure that you know, hey, this army that just got wiped out was not weak. They weren't overweight. This was a really tough group. And yet all of them died. God took out every single one of them. This is a little in comparison to everything he had just went through to take out one not shown to be super brilliant, larger man. I think it's trying to tell us what... To show how foolish all of that was or how unnecessary. This didn't happen because of any brilliant plan. They didn't conquer this army because they were all terrified because their leader was dead. There are plenty of other passages in Scripture that tell us that that is what happened. And yet, that doesn't seem to happen at all. Nothing happened. They just go in obedience to God and God defeats every single one of their enemies down to a man because God can take care of one on his own. I don't think Ehud needed to take matters into his own hands. It seemed like God did things just fine. And we also have a couple other places in scripture that I I think point towards Ehud's behavior being negative. There's one other place um, in 2 Samuel where it mentions another man who's a Benjamite, whose father is also named Gera, like Ehud's father, and he opposes David. He mocks David, and he tells him how he's not the rightful king, and good, I'm so glad that you seem to be getting punished. And later, we see that man have to repent for his actions. The other one, too, is we have Joab. Joab's one of David's servants, and David and him end up having a conflict, and one of the big things is there's two different times that Joab assassinates somebody that he wasn't supposed to kill. And the narrator, or God in his words, explicitly says this murder was wrong, and David says that it was wrong, and both of them mirror what Ehud had done here. 2 Samuel 3, one of them Joab lures a man to speak with him privately and then it mentions he stabs him in his stomach to kill him. And then the next one in 2 Samuel 20, Joab wears a special garment and he straps a sword on his thigh to conceal it and then it mentions how he grabs the man with his right hand and then stabs him with his left again in the belly to kill him. I think both of those later are intentionally trying to echo Ehud and show that this wasn't exactly what God wanted him to do. To me, at least, it seems like the, the weight of the biblical evidence is trying to show that Ehud is a schemer. It's not an example of how God uses weakness. So there are many other places of that. But it's an example of Ehud not being completely faithful. Not just being obedient. Not just trusting God. Raising up the nation to go fight and throw off their oppressors. Though he does that. But instead, he's trying to do it a little bit in his own way. We see this as well. Let's, turn, let's look, at, uh, look at this other small judge, verse 31, Shamgar. It's only one verse. It's very short. That's all that he gets. And some people don't know what to do with him at all. So where you'll have some, you know, critical or more, more secular scholars who will look at this and say, well, clearly this is why, you know, the Bible's not that well written because we just kind of have this thrown in here. Um, you know, they didn't know what to do with them and they just kind of threw it in this spot or they didn't have any good details. And so, you know, we don't, this seems just really out of place. But again, everything, nothing in the Bible is out of place. It's all important. It all has a purpose. And I think Shamgar is here intentionally to be a foil for Ehud. Now, if it's been a while since your last English class, right? Foil is kind of a literary term for characters. We talk about how they can contrast or compare to one another. So you have Ehud is one way and Shamgar is another way. And they're intentionally both there so you can look at what's different, what's the same. And they kind of, uh, the the foil contrasts it or reveals some differences. And after him is Shamgar, son of Anath. And he kills 600 Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. We have no... Fancy story. We don't get a lot of details about him. No big scheme, no speech, no grand army. He he doesn't even have a fancy weapon like Ehud. Ehud sits down, fashions his special knife. Shamgar just has his ox goad. Now, an ox goad is really just a typical agricultural tool for that time. It's a long stick. It's got some metal stuff on the end and maybe a little place that pokes it. And it's not for fighting, it's for pushing your oxen around. And it's got the metal stuff on the end, so in case, you know, your cart or your plow gets stuck, you can dig up the dirt with it and get things going. It's just his farming equipment, it's what he has. It's not meant to be an impressive weapon. If anything, it shows us a little bit about who Shamgar is. He's just a rancher, he's just a farmer, he doesn't have anything other than his farm tools. The text is trying to show us that this is just an, an average guy being obedient to God with what he has. And yet he obeys God with what he has. That simple ox goat and all alone he kills 600 Philistines. Okay, that alone is pretty miraculous. Okay, go outside today. If, if you want to get a picture of how miraculous it is. just find a stick. It doesn't even have to be a big long stick. Just take it and just swing it at the air about 600 times or just poke the ground 600 times. Or just count. See how high you can get. Okay, I, I tapped out around 40. Okay, because I'm, I'm kind of got it. and was like, all right, I'm, I'm exhausted. No, thank you. That seems like too much work. Maybe you're in way better shape than me or you feel tougher. You can try and beat that. But why don't you just go, go see how that goes. So what Shamgar does here, it's something that he could have only done with the divine help. I don't know if any human being could have that kind of strength to do that without... Some kind of ridiculous workout regimen, I guess. But I think still it's just only because of God. And why? It's just because he's obedient. And the last phrase there. And he also saved Israel. Ehud did all of his stuff. All of that. All of his schemings. Taking stuff into his own hands. And his elaborate plot. And his fancy weapons. And hey, Shamgar did it too. He just did it with his ox code. And he by himself was able to, to obey the Lord and take care of it. And so what do, we, what do we kind of do with this today? I think that the thrust of, of this text, again, is trying to encourage us and show us that we don't have to take matters into our own hands. That all that we need to do is we just have to be obedient and God is going to do what he's going to do. That God can take care of the rest. We don't have to have elaborate schemes. We don't have to, we don't, definitely don't have to sin. We don't have to do anything other than to just be obedient and let God take care of it. Now, what are some ways that we um, act like Ehud? Another way maybe to put it is that we can tend to have a utilitarian view of morality. Or another way to say that too is we can think that the ends justify the means. You think, well, you know, this is is really important. And so, you know, whatever we got to do to make it happen is fine. Even if no matter who we got to hurt or maybe we got to do something sinful. But as long as the, the ends are good, then we're okay. As that view of morality just says, you know, as long as most pe- the most amount of people are happy at the end, then however you get to get there is fine. This is kind of what Ehud's doing. Well, God wants me to deliver Israel, so however I do it is fine. Whatever, you know, plans or things that I got to do, whatever it is, take it into my own hands, I, I can do it because God's will is done. You know, as long as people are delivered at the end of it, it's happy. But God doesn't need us to do that. God just needs us to be obedient. Unfortunately, you can see how this works out even in churches throughout all the ages where we can, too, be tempted to believe that the ends justify the means. The denominations, individual churches fall into this, right? You say, well, the goal of the church, right, is to to share the good news of Jesus, to preach the gospel, to fulfill the Great Commission, to go and to make disciples, to see the kingdom of God spread throughout the world. So however we can do that, as long as that's happening, As long as new people are getting baptized and saved and the church is growing, then, you know, it's good. It's okay. We can celebrate. The dark side of that, it's a good goal. It's a worthy goal. It's what all of us are hopefully trying to do. But you can see how we're tempted to take matters into our own hands, how churches react to things like abuse. Think of a church where someone comes forward and says, Hey, this, this staff member, this pastor, I, I know or I've heard or I've seen that this is how they abused me or abused a child. And what's their immediate reaction most often, or often far too often, is either to just ignore it, maybe blame, blame the victim or brush it under the rug, say it's all imagined. But even then, in moments when it becomes unavoidable, well, I can't deny this has happened. Oh, gosh, well, what do we do? Well, the temptation then is to deal with it as quietly as possible and kind of move on. Let's fire the person, move them down the road. You know, maybe let's not tell as many people as, as we need to because, you know, if we did, it's going to be bad. The whole church finds out about it, it could, it could really hurt the mission of God. That we we're seeing baptisms, people are being saved, the church is growing, and this is really gonna kill the momentum. Some people are gonna get upset and leave. Some people aren't gonna trust us, so that people in the neighborhood might find out, then they're gonna want to come here. Well, the the ends have to justify the means. God's mission is too important to let it be derailed by this. And so, therefore, that's why we're gonna we're gonna handle it this way. Instead of being obedient to God's word instead of dealing and fronting sin instead of protecting the weak, choose churches off often... hands. Why? Because obedience can seem too costly. I think I was hanging out with a, a friend this weekend who was telling me about a church that they're that they kind of um, partner with and office with, and it's a really big church. Church used to see had 2,000 people on a Sunday, now they only have 200. And, well, I asked, well, well, how did that happen? And I already knew what the answer was. Well, there was some kind of sin that happened. There was a, a pastor who had an affair. And well, what happens when people find out about that? It tends to destroy the church. And churches and leaders know that. And so when they find out things like that, well, we got we to keep it down because the mission's too important. We got to take things into our own hands. You know, God's will might not be done unless we sin. And we don't say it that way, but this is the way that we are tempted to think. That we really, I, I got to sin. God's kingdom, God's mission needs my help. I got to take things into my own hands and do it this way because obedience might be too costly. That's how we're tempted to do this. But God doesn't need us to scheme. He doesn't need us to take things into our hands. He just needs us to be obedient. We're so obedient. We trust Him. He works out the rest of the details. He can save all of Israel with one farmer and an ox goad. He doesn't need our help really at all. He chooses to let us help. Another smaller temptation, maybe for us individually, that we can we can feel is when it comes to loving our neighbors. Or love, not loving our neighbors, loving our enemies. Now all of us in this room would probably affirm and raise our hands and say yes, that we as Christians should love our enemies, right? Jesus commands us to love our enemies. And yet, Christians seem to continually think this is an optional command. I look at and listen to the way that Christians talk about their enemies or post on social media about their enemies. I don't see lots of love at all. You know, we're supposed to love our political enemies, our religious enemies, our theological enemies, our national enemies, whatever enemy you think that you have, you're called by Jesus to love them, all of them. That's not optional, but we struggle with that. And well, how does that start? Well, the, the way we feel it is, well, the fight is too important. That this battle, that this thing that my enemy and me are disagreeing about and wrestling over for, for power or for influence or whatever it is, is so significant that I can't dare love them right now. Because if I love them, I might lose. This battle And, it's too, and the consequences of me doing that are, are too, too important. The country will fail. The church will be destroyed. You know, Everything will just die and fall apart if I don't not love my enemies. We might not say that but that's what we, we think and it's so important I have to fight by any means necessary I don't have time to do this and so we talk about our enemies and use dehumanizing, dehumanizing language we talk about our enemies as if they're not people made in the image of God that God cares about that he wants to come into his family We talk about them as if we don't actually want them to repent and turn of their sins and come to Jesus and then come and sit beside us on Sunday and then come into our families and eat meals with us as we follow Jesus together. We call them garbage. Talk about how stupid those people over there are. We rejoice when they suffer or when they're in pain. We think things like, well, you know, Jesus, if I just loved them and didn't do that, well, they might win. And that would be the worst. I can't lose. My team can't lose, whatever that is. So I've got to win at whatever cost. Well, church, too, we, what does it mean if we gain the whole world and we lose our soul? What is it worth if you win all your battles against your enemies and you come to the end and you find out, oh, wait, I don't actually even know Jesus. I haven't been living like him. God doesn't need you to scheme. He doesn't need you to, to, to take matters into your own hands to win any battle. God's in charge of that. He's determining and and takes care of it. All that God needs us to do is to obey. We don't have to go around him. We don't have to outsmart him. We don't need to do anything that he hasn't asked us to do because that battle that seems so significant is always going to be there. There's always another one throughout the ages. There's always another reason to disobey God. There's always another reason that I don't have that something is optional. There's always another reason to hate each other. There's always something new to fight about. There's always another temptation. But there's also always another chance to be obedient. There's also always another chance to let things be in God's hands and to just trust him. To instead of taking matters into our own hands to just be obedient and let God take care of it. So point number 2 is it's really just kind of our our application and it's partly an encouragement of just our, your small obedience matters. That your small obedience matters. Some of you in here, some of us need to be challenged. We might have to honestly ask ourselves, where am I tempted to be uh, like Ehud. Where are places that I'm tempted to take matters into my own hands? Where are places that I am tempted to sin for good reasons? Maybe even for what I think are godly reasons. Because this is so important. So I need to do this. Instead of just obediently trusting God. If that's you, then you kind of need to be pushed. Know, admonish you, encourage you. Just be obedient. Be more like Shamgar than Ehud. Just take your, your small obedience to the Lord and let him work out the rest of the details. Shamgar had no fancy story, no interesting plans. He just says his farm tools, his obedience, and yet he too saved Israel. God can use your small obedience to save many around you. Some of you may need to be encouraged. You might feel like your small obedience doesn't matter. Maybe you feel like your gifts aren't particularly impressive. You feel like you're not a very important person or significant in the kingdom of God. You're not going to be in any times top 100 most influential Christian lists. But hear me, your small obedience matters to Jesus. That God repeatedly in the kingdom of God chooses the small. we talked about this in the first Corinthians. He chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chooses to save people who are dumb To shame those with all the degrees. He chooses the weak. He chooses the disciples who didn't make it to being a Pharisee. He chooses the poor. He chooses overlooked women to come and be his disciples. He chooses children who have nothing to offer. Don't keep those children away from me. Let them come. God didn't choose you. God didn't save you because he knows you have some amazing ideas to help out his kingdom. And he's just got to get you in on the ground floor so you can help it take off. Because he's going to be in trouble unless you help. God saves you because he loves you. The amazing thing about what God does is he takes the the foolish things to shame the wise. Takes these fishermen and he turns them into men who turn the world upside down. He takes the chief murderer of the church and Paul and turns them into the person who writes most of the New Testament. He takes shepherds like David and makes them the greatest king the land has ever known. God will take you and your small obedience and turn it into a crown of righteousness in the life to come. Your small obedience matters. Every time you open up God's word desperate to hear his voice, it matters. Every time you pray even when you don't want to and even when your prayer isn't that great and you don't have many words, it matters. Every time you sing a worship song, even though it's not your favorite, and maybe you don't even like it at all, but you decide, Lord, I'm just going to sing because it's not about me, it's about you. It matters. Every time you you listen to a sermon desperate to hear from God, even when the sermon and the preacher isn't very good, but you are trying to be obedient, that matters. Every time you embody Christ in your life, every small thing that you do, trying to be like Jesus matters for all eternity. Your obedience matters. It's what God is after, not because it's what brings us salvation, but it's because we love Jesus. And we want to do things that bring Jesus joy. And because we love Jesus, we try to act like Jesus. You may not feel like you're changing the world, but God is changing your life. You don't have to be somebody impressive. You don't have to bend the rules. You don't have to do anything special other than just obey and follow Jesus and be obedient and watch and see what he does with and around your life. One of the wondrous things about the gospel is that it sets us free, right? Jesus came and he died for us, not because we were awesome, but because we were not awesome, Because we were rebellious sinners as far from God as we could get. Dead and trapped in our sins. And yet he came down on earth and lived a perfect life. And died a sacrificial death on the cross. To save us and deliver us from our sins. People who did not deserve it. Who didn't ask for it. Who weren't begging out and crying for it. Who were stiff arming and spitting at the face of God. And yet even on the cross as he lay dying and they cursed him. He said, Father forgive them. Jesus died. Jesus died to save us and deliver us from our sins. He did not die for us because we were so impressive and wonderful. And all of that is true. And it's not just true for our salvation, but it also that that frees us from having to be the most amazing people in the world. If I don't have to be awesome in order for Jesus to save me and deliver me from my sins, you also don't have to be awesome to make God love you. The gospel sets you free from the need to be the most important, most awesome, biggest world changer ever. You can just be your ordinary self, humbly trying to follow Jesus in whatever circumstances he's placed you in. And that matters to God. It matters deeply. In conclusion, just what we, we've been at this morning, our, our main point is that you don't have to take matters into your own hands. You just need to Be obedient. Leave it in God's hands. Let God take care of it. And our application or encouragement is just that your small obedience matters to God. Even if you don't feel like you are changing the world or making a massive impact, God is working and changing your life on the inside. And one day when you stand before Him at the end, you'll hear a good and faithful servant and you will find out and be amazed at how God saw and cares. will reward and bless you for all of those small, minor times that you chose to be obedient to Him, even if no one else saw. Let's bow our heads in, in prayer. I'll invite the worship team to, to come back up. Lord, I just... I thank You for Your salvation and deliverance. Lord, I thank You that You the gospel just sets us free from having to be awesome. Or that you set us free from from having to try to earn our salvation. You set us free from having to try to earn your love. Or from having to try to be anything impressive. Lord, I also am so grateful that you would just use us anyway. That you would use us even when we get things wrong. That you would choose the weak and foolish things of the world like us to preach the gospel and to to share the good news of Jesus and to embody your kingdom on this world. Lord, I I pray that you would encourage us. I I pray that you would help us to obey and to follow you in our lives, in every step, not just in the big things, but especially in the small, daily, ordinary moments of our days. Lord, we would be a people who love and who follow you. And we pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we continue to worship our Savior. Amen. Hear this benediction from number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God bless you. Go in peace this week.